Uh, welcome back. Rob Breckenridge with you on this Monday afternoon. Much more to get to here this afternoon. We'll get back to more of your phone calls. Uh, of course, a lot of focus on what transpired today in London and uh, through the weekend and the lead up to the state funeral today, laying to rest Queen Elizabeth II. So a lot to recap, uh, certainly from today in the last few days. And we will get back to, yes, uh, getting a lot of reaction today, both on the how embarrassing side and the why is this a big deal side with regard to Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. Uh, and some footage, I guess, that emerged from how he was spending his Saturday evening. But joining us uh, for a recap in the last few days, very pleased to welcome back here one more time, Ben O'Hara Byrne, host of A Little More Conversation, weeknights on Chorus Radio. Of course, has been in London for the past several days. Ben, thanks so much for making some time for us here. I know it's been a long day, but appreciate this. Yeah, thanks, Rob. Thanks for having me. All right, so let's just go through everything that happened today. We had, of course, uh, the, the funeral itself. We have the, the procession that had a pretty uh, large and significant Canadian contingent. Let's let's go through the big uh, moments from today, first of all. Yeah, it feels like there was a lot of history packed into one day, wasn't yeah. there? I mean, this was we hadn't seen anything like this in many, many years and decades. Um, and it felt like every moment was something to watch and to try to understand and the ceremony of it and so forth. I mean, it started right you know, right before 11 o'clock here in the morning with the um, with the coffin being taken out of Westminster Hall and put onto the gun cart and, and then dragged or pulled by members of the Royal Navy uh, towards, it's not a very long route, but towards Westminster Abbey and then all the, del- all the VIPs showing up and then the military presence and, and then the service itself, which was quite short, it was quite brief, but it was very intimate in a, in a way, despite how big, Westminster Abbey is and how many people were there. The, the service itself was very much, I think, a reflection of of her. It was quite it was quite a humble service for someone who had been queen for seventy years. There wasn't a lot of there wasn't a lot of you know over the top praise in it. It felt like something that she would have had a real hand in, and I believe she did in terms of the tone, what was being said. The hymns were very personal. There was one that had been sung at her at her wedding. Uh, there was another that had been sung at the wedding of of, of William and Kate. Um, you know, these were this was a family funeral in many ways, even though there were hundreds of millions, perhaps a billion people watching it. Uh, this was very much a family funeral that that reflected her. And and I thought that uh, that was that was quite not that it was surprising, but it was certainly um, interesting to listen to because it felt like you heard things about her. Even yeah. the Archbishop of Canterbury's uh, sermon was, was was very personal. It was about her dedication to service and her dedication to God. And, you know, there was a lot in there that helped you understand a bit more about her. And then the procession was afterwards another reflection of some of the things that she cared deeply about, including her role as colonel-in-chief of, of, of different, very many military units as their leader. Um, so we saw a lot of those, you know, every Canadian regiment that was there had that connection to the Queen. And uh, it was very important for them to be there. So it was sort of this idea that she was sort of paying, she was, even today, um, saying thanks to the people that she had sort of been close to over those 70 years, the regiments she'd been close to uh, here and abroad, the things that she, um, you know, paying tribute to her past, paying tribute to her late husband. There was a lot in there that was, that was, that was interesting. It's hard to digest all of it in one day. Um, and then, of course, it went to Windsor, and then there was another committal, and then the burial with the fam, with, you know, in the family vault. So it was, it was a lot packed into one day, but it felt, it felt right. I mean, it, it felt the way it should be for her funeral, and I, I, you know, and I think that's what she would have wanted to see, perhaps, is the military and all the people coming out, but quiet and respectful, but also not, you know, not um, not wailing. This was somber, and yet, and yet, somehow, um, 
celebration of her life as well. And for the Canadians who were a part of this and, and how much that meant to them, and I know you had the opportunity to, to speak with uh, one Lieutenant Colonel who's with the Storm on Dundas and Glengarry Highlanders. They mm. were part of the, the procession and just, you know, what it meant to them to be there. Yeah, and, and the Calgary Highlander as well. Um, you know, they, they were, I mean, not only did they get to sit in the Abbey for the service, then they had to join the procession afterwards. And as... Um, as, as one one of them put it, the idea of marching, you know, past Westminster or being at the Abbey or walk, marching through uh, horse, horse guards or marching up the Mall or past Buckingham Palace, any one of those things would have been a day to remember forever. And they did all of them in one day. But they were, you know, they, they obviously understood the magnitude of representing not only you know, the Calgary Highlanders or, or, or the Stormont Glengarry, Dundas Glengarry Highlanders, but you know, all the generations of them going back 70 years. Uh, and that part of it was very, you know, was a weight for them. But they also spoke about what it was like to be in the actual procession, to feel the energy from the crowd, or at least the love of the crowd um, that had formed for the Queen, but also for the family. And he was one of them was walking quite near to the family and said, you could tell this was a very difficult day for them, quite obviously. Um, but at one point, he said they were, as they were coming up to the end, the sun hit the imperial crown in a certain way, um, and the light bounced off it. And you sat there looking at the royal family and the coffin and the crown, and and it was just all—he um, called it surreal. And I think the word was—he was awestruck by it because it was so significant. It was such a big moment in history, and there you are standing and watching it. Um, so yeah, it was, it was very nice, to, and obviously the Mounties leading. The procession was a really um, nice thing to see as well, and they were very, uh, obviously, very happy with, with you know, happy is probably the wrong word, but, you know, they were certainly proud to have been there, and it was a nice reflection of the Queen's love of Canada as well. Indeed. Now, you know, the, the Prime Minister's made some headlines today, as, as you're well aware. Look, today was the day of the funeral. Today was the somber day. Whether yesterday was, whether Saturday was, maybe is open to debate, but this footage of Trudeau singing Bohemian Rhapsody in London on, on Saturday night, what, what did you make of that? Yeah, I mean, it's one of those things where you're like, okay, if this had happened five years ago, or if it hadn't happened a while back, you would have said, you know, okay. Okay. You know, it's not, you probably shouldn't. And the problem with it is that it's not that there's, I mean, people who don't like Justin Trudeau will, will go to town on this. People who do like him will defend him. Yeah. If you if you take it from just a non-partisan, you look at it and go, why would you do, you're here for the Queen's funeral. It's a moment in history. This is a, you know, and, and maybe she wouldn't have minded even, but he's, you know, the one thing that always strikes me when you come abroad is that everyone knows who he is. He's, he's a famous guy abroad. Um, so, of course, if he does something like that in public, it's going to be seen. And you just think, why would you do that on the Saturday night? You know, it, just, it seemed a bit glib, and I'm sure it was in all in good intention, but it just seemed a bit tone deaf to be, and not to insult his singing, but it was it seemed just tone deaf given the circumstances. And he's in a situation now where I don't really think he can afford to make those kinds of small mistakes if you want to, or maybe it's a big mistake depending on what you consider. So it just seemed like it was seemed inappropriate. And I don't know whether it's a, it's not the crime of the century, but it just seemed the timing was terrible, and you just think, why would you why would you put yourself in that situation? There was an awkwardness to it for sure. Ben, we'll leave it there. Of course, so much more uh, tonight and this week on a little more conversation. But uh, appreciate the conversation uh, here today and over the last few days. Thanks so much for this.
Yeah, thanks, so. All right, cheers, Ben. Uh, ben O'Hara Burnt, host of a little more conversation weeknights on Chorus Radio, 8 to 11 uh, Alberta time. And he's uh, been spending the last few days uh, in London, obviously, uh, keeping on top of events and, and having some interesting conversations himself. So much more on the show tonight. We still got much more to get to, including that conversation about whether the Prime Minister's antics on Saturday night were appropriate. Was this just a case of the Prime Minister letting his hair down and having a little bit of fun uh, on Saturday night ahead of uh, a very somber day today? Or was it inappropriate, given the magnitude and the seriousness of why he was in London? Now, if you missed it earlier, we're talking about... So apparently there was um, a Quebec musician who's a part of the delegation. He's a member of the Order of Canada. Uh, They ended up in the lobby of uh, the hotel they were at. He was playing the piano, and a few people, including the Prime Minister, uh, joined in for some impromptu singing. Okay, so it's cringy, it's awkward, it's not really good singing, obviously, but just the smiles and the frivolity of it did seem, I think, to a lot of people, out of step with the seriousness of the occasion. And been getting a lot of reaction from people today. Was this inappropriate? Was this unprofessional? Was this unbecoming? How big a deal is this? Certainly the British tabloids took notice. Has been alluded to. I mean, Justin Trudeau is famous. He's recognizable. Uh, most places he goes. Now, he's had some missteps and some embarrassments abroad. Does, does this eclipse those others? Probably not. But uh, maybe it, it still places itself on that list nonetheless. Welcome back. Well, the Prime Minister, we understand, is on his way to New York. Uh, won't be back in Ottawa for the resumption of Parliament. But, uh, of course, the rest of the Canadian delegation will be making their way back to Canada from the uh, royal funeral. Presumably, I would expect, all members of the delegation, uh, because they're returning to Canada, would be required to fill out the Arrive Canada, Which I think has more or less just become kind of an annoying hassle for travellers. But maybe the days of the much maligned app being mandatory are nearing an end. Now, a decision needs to be made at the end of the month on whether to continue with Arrive Can as a mandatory app for those returning to or entering Canada. And, of course, whether to maintain other travel requirements and restrictions. Interesting scoop uh, in the Toronto Sun and Sun uh, newspapers today that uh, some big changes could be coming. At the end of the month, including possibly the Arrive Can app no longer being mandatory. So joining us to talk about what kind of conversations are happening behind the scenes, what kind of political pressure there is on the government to, to ease up on, on some of these remaining mandates. Very pleased to welcome to the program uh, here this afternoon, Brian Lilly, political columnist uh, with the Toronto Sun, torontosun.com. You can find his latest today. Brian, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. I got to say, we got you there, Brian? I don't know, Patrick, I'll put him back on hold here. Maybe we'll see what's, uh, what's going on there, just to, to go from Brian's piece here. Uh, it says, the Arrive Can app may no longer be mandatory, and other remaining travel requirements for restrictions that air travel could soon be removed. If all goes well, masking could even be made optional within the next few weeks. All right, so what's driving this? Where's this coming from? I think we got Brian on the line there. Brian, you there? Yeah, sorry about that. Can, uh, there we go. Perfect. Can hear me now. All right, good to have you with us here. Now, it, it seems as though the government, you know, for months and months has really dug in its heels on, on all of these uh, measures and more. So it almost seems like they would be really reluctant to concede any ground here. But what are you hearing? What, what's your sense of what's going on? 
What I'm hearing is that they're looking at making a RiveCan optional at the end of the month. Now I was just looking on my phone to see, okay, do I still have it? You know, right. what would be the benefit of using it if if I don't have to? You can apparently they're they're going to say it can be one option for you um, submitting your customs information when you return to the country, mm-hmm. but you will no longer need to um, upload your vaccination information because. The vac- uh, vaccination requirement will also sunset at the end of the month, along with the random mandatory testing. So those three things are what they're looking at doing. Making a can optional, getting rid of the requirement that anyone coming into the country has to be vaccinated, and getting rid of the random mandatory testing. What's up in the air, according to the intelligence I have, is whether masking on airplanes will... Uh, be dropped as well, or whether that will continue on until uh, sometime after Thanksgiving, because uh, Health Minister Jean-Yves Duclos apparently wants to see if the um, there's a surge in, in COVID over the fall and, and how it relates to Thanksgiving travel. I mean, it does feel like that would be a big reversal. And, you know, I suppose credit where credit is due. If the government's looking at it and saying, OK, you know, we don't need these anymore. I think some would, would argue that maybe that point was months ago. But it does fly in the face of a lot of what they've said publicly about why we've had to still maintain all of this. So I don't know. Does it surprise you, first of all? Well, it surprised me that they extended them in June, because uh, in June they were supposed to lapse at the at the end of June. And instead, they put them through for another three months. They issued another order in council, which is the legal basis for why these uh, requirements are there. Um, And it surprised me that they extended them because you looked at provincial restrictions and they'd all been dropped. And European countries had uh, removed requirements. Um, You know, the the United States still has the oddity that if you fly into the country – uh, you've got to be vaccinated, but eh, it's a little wishy-washy if you drive or walk across. Right. But a lot of other countries had dropped these sorts of requirements, and the Trudeau guys didn't. I always felt it was political. Now, is it political that they're going to drop them? You know, if my name was Pierre Polyev, I'd be uh, pumping my fist in the air and saying, see, I'm, I'm getting results already. A ride can is going to go. Uh, there is the fact, though, that to, for them to go past September 30th, they would have to make a conscious decision, uh, issue another order in council to extend them. So they may just quietly let it lapse. Or maybe we'll see an announcement tomorrow. When I say tomorrow, because there's a court case on Wednesday where one man from British Columbia, one man from Toronto joined together, and then there are some other cases attached onto it, <clears throat> to... Uh, uh, challenge the vaccination mandate to fly on a plane. Now, the government says, well, this is all moot now. Like, we don't have to hear this case because we dropped it for domestic flights back in uh, June. You know, some people still think you you have to be vaccinated to fly from Calgary to Toronto. You don't. Mm -hmm. Uh, They dropped that in June. So they're trying to say this this case shouldn't even be heard. If they drop the international requirements as well, that bolsters their arguments before the court. And I don't think the government wants this case to get to court because they could lose. And if they lose, if vaccine mandates like this are declared unconstitutional, then if they want to bring them in again in the future, it'll be much more difficult. So, you know, I think there's a lot of different factors at play in in why they're heading in this direction. That and, well, they keep saying they're following the science and the science doesn't back up what they've been doing. 
Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, look, the Arrive Can app in particular has been such a flashpoint. There's, there's been so many problems with it. It's, it's really, I think, widely seen as, as more of a hassle than anything else. And so, yeah, the politics around this has changed. Like, I try to imagine, okay, let's say the government announces, hey, we, we love Arrive Can. We're going to keep it mandatory. Like, there's very few Canadians that would applaud that, that would be happy about it. Conversely, though... If they say, you know what, we're, we're going to make it optional, I think that would be welcomed. Like the politics around this have really changed, haven't they? They have, although there's, there was a bizarre thing a little while ago and I, when it was pointed out to me that the ArriveCan app is one of the most popular and highly rated apps on the Apple App Store. It's not quite as popular. I think last I looked at it, it had a 3.2 rating on the Google Store, mm-hmm. but on the Apple Store, you clearly had people who were supporters of the government going on and giving five-star reviews, just like you had opponents of the government giving one-star <laughs> reviews. <laughs> so even the reviews on the App Store of ArriveCan have been heavily politicized. It, look, it, it is just a pain. It's worked fine for me, um, but I know plenty of people who have smartphones who are able to use them who it hasn't worked for. And, and I think of where my parents go in, in Florida in the winter. And a lot of their neighbors, they carry flip phones. They still make those, believe it or not. And a lot of seniors prefer flip phones to smartphones. They don't want to use the phone for anything else. It's just for an emergency. Why should they have to have a download an app for this? So they bristle at it. Um, So, yeah, there's a lot of, you know, there, there would be goodwill politics by the government for dropping this. I'm not sure... Uh, how many people that are really angry at it are willing to give them any benefit of the doubt anymore. That's mm-hmm. kind of the position that we're at in, in a highly polarized, politicized Canada. But, um, yeah, they, they could get some goodwill out of it. It maybe diffuses the issue a little bit. You alluded to, you know, the polyev factor here. And, you know, for the Liberals to take a step back and say, OK, you know, why is this guy resonating or where are we vulnerable? This would seem to jump out like an obvious one. So maybe there is some motivation on that side of it. And there's also the big push by border communities. So oh, yeah. whether we're talking about, um, you know, Vancouver and Surrey trying to attract people up from Bellingham and Seattle or, you know, I'm, I'm doing a radio hit in Buffalo tomorrow because they saw my story and they got excited because it's a pain for Americans. A lot of them don't know. And then they hear, oh, yeah, you can go to Canada now. And they try and go to Canada. They, you know, they love coming over here for day trips as much as we love going over there. And that's, oh, wait, I have to download an app? Oh, I have to give you all this information? Okay, I'm just going to stay in Lackawanna. I'm not going up to Niagara Falls. Well, the border communities want this gone. Yeah. I think you guys had the story first, didn't you, about the uh, the, the Detroit-Windsor Marathon that, that goes across the bridge and it sort of encompasses both communities. And anyone mm-hmm. who was participating in that needed to, to download and use the Arrive Can app. Yeah, it was... Uh, <sighs> I got I got the news release, or it wasn't even a news release. It was uh, one of the runners sent it to me uh, because you know the, they've been participating in the uh, in the marathon for several years, and obviously not during COVID, it was shut down. But they were furious at um, at this requirement. But you know, you you literally are in uh, Canada for less than an hour on that uh, on a police patrolled and guarded. Uh, marathon route, but you still have to use the ArriveCan app and have all these bits of paperwork on you yeah. to to do this. It, you know, it's not the sort of thing that had been done before. In, in border communities, there is an awful lot of back and forth. Um, you know, I've, I've been to the famous library in, that crosses the, the actual building itself 
sits on the border and it crosses between Vermont and Quebec. And you go into the library in Vermont, the returns desk is in Quebec. The fiction section is in one country. The nonfiction is in another. And, but, but it's the library for the English-speaking community on both sides of the border. And, you know, things like a ride can just get in the way of that back and forth that, uh, you know, may, maybe some Canadians don't understand because they don't live as close to the border. But it, it really has an impact. It's hurt our tourism sector. It would have made more sense to get rid of this in June to help the tourism sector. Uh, instead, we're we're past the, the peak travel season, and now we're thinking about it. Well, the latest, as mentioned, up at torontosun.com and a decision to be made one way or another by the end of the month. Brian Lilly, thanks so much for making some time for us here today. Appreciate it. Thank you, Rob. Cheers. Brian Lilly, political columnist at the Toronto Sun, torontosun.com. So he's got the scoop today. Uh, that Arrive can may be optional by the end of the month. We could see some other travel measures lifted as well. Either way, the government's got a decision to make. They either got to choose to renew all of this at the end of September or make some changes because the order in council that gives all of these, uh, that puts all of these restrictions and requirements in place expires. And we've kind of been doing that all along, just renewing as we go. But on Arrive Can especially, the pushback from travelers, the frustration of those who were wrongly forced into quarantine, and, and that was, you know, in the thousands. Uh, the frustration from border communities, the impact on travel, the pressure from the, the travel industry, airlines, etc. Like, there are a lot of voices who say, we, we got to change this. And there aren't very many that say, no, 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 we need this. We got to keep this. Like, there are people who kind of shrug and say, okay, whatever, it's not a big deal. But that's about as enthusiastic as you're going to find uh, for Arrive Camp. And as other countries move away from, from this, you know, that, that conversation does need to happen. In Canada, does any of this still make any sense? What is any of this still accomplishing at this point? Welcome back. Well, certainly the passing of the Queen marks the end of an era. But should it also mark, could it also mark the end of something bigger? Could the Queen have been, should the Queen have been, Canada's last monarch? Should King Charles III be Canada's last monarch? Monarch, is it time to sever these ties once and for all? Look, for all intents and purposes, going all the way back to 1931, we have separated ourselves from the British monarchy. King Charles is now the King of Canada. But he's clearly not Canadian, nor will any of his successors be. Does that, should that matter? Is it an opportunity here for us to think about or talk about something different? But different how? Different why? So a lot of big questions about our relationship with the monarchy and what we want Canada to be. There's an interesting piece uh, in the Globe and Mail uh, from over the weekend. And now maybe it's time for Canada to, to have that conversation, to think about maybe even becoming a republic, ending the monarchy altogether. Joining us to talk about it is the author of this piece, Andrew Cohen, journalist, professor at Carleton University, also author of the book, The Unfinished Canadian, The People We Are. Andrew, good to have you with us here today. Welcome to the program. Uh, pleasure. Do you think there is a separation between the uh, the affinity, the fondness, even the love at some level that the Canadians had for Queen Elizabeth II and, and how we feel about the institution? Uh, absolutely there is. Um, there is not a bad word to be said about Queen Elizabeth and we mourn her passing, as all um, 
as all people do. Uh, she was a very fine, reliable, stoic, enduring monarch. And most of us who, whose lifetime is all we've, we've only known her in our lifetime feel nothing but uh, pride and, um, and now sadness uh, with her passing. But, Rob, the institution of the monarchy is something different. And incidentally, Charles will test that. My guess is that he will not be as popular as the Queen, but it doesn't really matter because my argument is it's time for us to consider not having the King of England be the King of Canada and to have our own head of state, someone who lives in Canada and works full-time for us. So, in other words, dissolving our ties with the monarchy. Why the monarchy, though? I mean, you can make the point about the, I guess, the nationality of the individual um, who, who wears that, that crown or where they happen to live. There was, of course, some, some talk in recent years whether our laws of succession would indeed follow the British laws of succession, whether we could have a separate monarch than, than England does. But, but you're arguing not just the person in that position, but the position itself. Yes, I'm arguing that, that we, as a mature nation, of 155 years, and we're not as young as people keep saying we are. We actually, among democracies in the world, we're quite old. And Rob, our story has been for the last 100 years or so, of, it's the story of asserting ourselves, whether it was the Statute of Westminster in 1931, which gave us control over our foreign policy, whether it was the Citizenship Act of 1947, which made us British subjects no more, whether it was the flag, and many Canadians of a certain age will remember the great debate over the flag in 1965, Lester Pearson adopting our own flag, and most recently and most prominently, patriation and the entrenchment of a Charter of Rights. Our story has been one of maturity and evolution, not revolution, evolution, and becoming our own people and putting distance between ourselves and Great Britain and getting rid of the monarchy, and you can call it getting rid of or dissolving it or whatever, is made not out of anger. It's made out of simply a, a recognition that it is a colonial relic and that we, if we're going to have a king of Canada, and I don't think it'll be a king of Canada, but if we are going to have a head of state, probably the governor general in some form, then we need to dissolve our ties with the monarchy. It's not a radical idea, Rob. Australia and New Zealand are considering it. Barbados and Jamaica are doing it. India did it in 1950. So countries do do this and still remain members of the Commonwealth, still have an affinity historically for England and, and the Queen and, and, the, and even the monarchy itself going back at the beginning, but nonetheless feel that this is what countries do as an assertion of maturity and, um, and advancement. I mean, we talk about Canada's, you know, success, longevity uh, of Canadian democracy. Is, is that, and you suggest maybe that it's in spite of the monarchy, is it possibly because of the institution? Well, uh, one could argue that, that the monarchy gave us stability, and, and you can say that some Canadians, and there are many who have an attachment to the Queen and the monarchy, say that it differs us from the United States. But really, if you're the second largest country in the world, and you have a population of 38 million, which makes you among the higher populated countries in the world, and you have a history of 150 years, and you have a geography, and you have a diversity, and you have a prosperity, do you not owe it to yourselves after the death of Queen Elizabeth, and we waited for this so as not to be disrespectful, to say to yourself, should we not have a conversation in this country about who we want to be? And if we want to be full-fledged Canadians, 
and not have a relationship with what is a foreign monarch. Uh, the, the, the queen, blessed as she was, made many trips to Canada but never lived here. She lived in England, which is, of course, where she lived. And I would make no comment on the monarchy in England. If, if that's the English way, bless them. But for Canada, as for other countries, the Dominion, and I, I speak particularly of Australia, which had a referendum on this, and New Zealand, they believe differently that it is time, in their case and in ours, to, to continue our revolution to be something other than the colony we were for so long. You know, the, the point about you know, what the crown represents and how difficult it would be to change that, first of all, the, the hurdle that exists of, of getting every province, parliament, the unanimous consent... Like I said, I don't think it should discourage us from having a conversation if Canadians want, but we do need to be realistic about how difficult it would be, don't we? Absolutely. And there is no sugarcoating how difficult it will be. Um, In our Constitution, the Constitution Act of 1982, to change the monarchy requires the consent of every province. Uh, Any province could veto it. It requires unanimity. It also requires a resolution of both houses of, of Parliament. Um, it'll probably go, Rob, to a referendum. Um, I, I would think that provinces would say, we don't want to do this unless we feel so we may have a national referendum. Um, and remember, we, those of us who follow the Constitution and nation building as we describe it, uh, it's not easy to change a Constitution. And when you do, everybody comes to the table with something else. In fact, Alberta might be attracted by all this because when you open up the Constitution, you say, well, what do I want? Well, premiers may want a fully elected Senate. Uh, They may want um, uh, greater uh, jurisdiction over property rights. Um, uh, Generally speaking, when we talk about the Constitution's provinces want more powers. So there is a danger for Canada, which is already a decentralized federation, perhaps the most in the world, Uh, There is a danger that if we go into this, where will it lead us? But, you know, I have to say, Rob, that every time we've talked about this kind of an exercise, and I I refer to the flag in 1965 and Pierre Trudeau and the patriation of the Constitution in 1980, 81, and 1982, there were always people who said, don't touch it, it's too hard, we can't do it. The Globe and Mail editorials last week, don't touch it, forget about it. it, it's a fantasy. That's not how you build countries, and that's not how you assert yourself as a nation. So if you're serious about this, you go into it with your eyes open, and yes, you consider what would be the alternative. Would we be making our governor general the head of state? Would it be something else? Would it be somebody elected? There are countries like Germany that elect their head of state. Some countries like Israel appoint their head of state. Uh, But there are a number of examples out there. So it's not as if you can't do it. It's just that it would be very hard in Canada because it's so hard to change our constitution. Right. And so you you alluded to a couple of examples where there would be, I suppose, maybe an easier shift, where you still have a head of state that that is somewhat ceremonial, that kind of embodies, you know, the, the executive function of the state, but doesn't execute those powers. Obviously, the United States is an example where those powers are a part of the, the presidency and, and, you know, it's very much a power that the president can exercise. France has kind of that, that duality of the prime minister and, and the president. So, um, you know, we're, we're seeing some different examples where some might represent modest change, others would represent, frankly, outright overhaul. I mean, is, is there a case to be made for one or the other? 
Um, I, I don't think Canadians would be interested in adopting the American model. You've just uh, correctly pointed out the president has in that office both the uh, is the leader of the country and the head of state. Other countries, as I say, separate the head of state, and the head of state acts very much like the monarchy would act. Um, it's a check on the power of parliament. Um, it's largely ceremonial now, but but it does act as the embodiment of the values of the country, whomever holds that job. Um, it is, as I say, it, it varies by country, but there are a lot of examples out there of very effective heads of state which aren't kings or queens. And Canada already has. I mean, you could argue now the governor general is what what governor generals have said. We are the de facto. We are in fact the head of state, but we're not in law the head of state. The, the head of state of Canada is the King of England, now King Charles III. So we could evolve into using, it could be the governor general, it would be the natural position to do that, but it could be someone else whom Canadians would decide should the government appoint that person as we appoint a governor general now. Uh, I don't think there would be any interest in making it hereditary, as the, the crown is, or should it be an elected position? And as I say, there are countries that do that. There are models out there we could look at. Um, and I think it would be part, Rob, of a very invigorating, refreshing discussion of who we are. And it's not to say we couldn't talk about other things, like an elected Senate, like right. proportional representation. We are a country that is moving quite quickly into the 21st century. We're growing quickly, and our diversity is changing who we are and where we came from. And this is an, uh, an opportunity for us to position ourselves for, for the future. It doesn't mean rewriting the whole Constitution, but it does mean addressing this element of it and maybe some other things as well. Yeah, and again, I'm not a constitutional scholar, but it seems that it would be easier, for example, to simply change the laws of succession and decide that the next king or queen of Canada is somebody else. Now, that would still leave us with a king or queen, and I'm curious whether there's something about that title or something about the idea of a monarch that maybe is, you see is, is antiquated. Is, is that something to get hung up on, or how relevant is, is that side of it? Well, uh, many people will argue, quite rightly, that they'll say, well, why even bother with this? The monarchy really has no authority. It hasn't had any authority. Uh, the Queen was quite ready to accept uh, if we, as she was Australia or New Zealand, she was quite willing to accept if we decided to go our own way. Um, you could adopt a system in which you actually keep the, the monarchy, but really just don't observe it. You could not put the, the picture or the image of King Charles on our money or our post-it stamps. We could decide uh, not to invite King Charles to Canada. Um, we don't want to be rude about it, but we would just say we don't really need state visits anymore from you and the royal family. We may decide um, uh, it, in other ways to reduce the, to take royal out of the names of, say, the, the Air Force or even the RCMP. Um, you could do that. So there are ways, if you thought that you wanted to lighten the footprint of the monarchy in Canada, there are ways to do it. But constitutionally, you would still have that. So the question is, how important is it to you? And one thing I'll say to you, Rob, is whenever the Constitution is raised, and I say this having covered it many times in my career, um, these kinds of conversations, I would always be told if there are 100 priorities, the 101st is changing the Constitution for this type of thing. But if it hadn't have been done, we wouldn't be the country we are today. Well, we'll leave it on that note. As mentioned, your latest, it's up at theglobeandmail.com. Andrew Cohen, thank you so much for joining us here today. Appreciate the conversation. Thank you much for the opportunity. All Bye -bye. the best. Uh, that's Andrew Cohen, a professor at Carleton University, also author of the book, The Unfinished Canadian, The People We Are.
And he says we should be a people that, that has our own head of state, not sharing a head of state with another country, not having as the head of state somebody who is not of this country. Turning our attention back to the question of whether Canada has been well served by the monarchy. Obviously, Canadians uh, adored and are mourning the queen. And I suppose there is a difference between adoring the person and adoring the institution. We heard earlier today from Andrew Cohen, who made the argument that maybe it's time for Canada uh, to move away from the monarchy. uh, To have a Canadian head of state, to maybe even become a republic. Is that a change that would serve Canada well? Our next guest says no. In fact, he argues that Canada needs the monarchy. Canada has been well served by the monarchy, and it's a tradition that should continue. Well, joining us to talk about that side of the debate, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Andre Pratt, uh, who is a senior fellow at the Graduate School of Public and International Affairs at the University of Ottawa. You can read his piece uh, from the weekend. It's up at nationalpost.com. Andre, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. I mean, it is important, I think, to, to take a step back and, you know, look at whether Canada has been well served by this institution. But what do you make of the, the notion that maybe now there's a need for a, a discussion? Maybe Canadians should be talking about or, or thinking about this? Well, I don't disagree that there could be or should be a discussion. Uh, uh, the point I was making is that you have to look at what this institution is for, what's its uh, role. And its role basically is to ensure that there's a a stable, respected authority uh, which uh, serves when uh, you have a change of transition of party in power, for example, or to uh, complete the process for adopting laws and things like that. So you need that kind of authority in a country. And as far as the monarchy is concerned in Canada, the system has worked very well. I mean, we've had a very stable democratic system for uh, uh, more than 150 years, and uh, the system is working well. So, uh, I mean, if you think, you know, I wouldn't oppose having a Canadian head of state. The thing is, as you know, and I'm sure you've told your listeners, uh, this would be an extremely complex process, very time-consuming process, probably divisive. Mm -hmm. And, um, I mean, you could go through that if, if it was worth it. My argument is, frankly, it's not worth it. The system works well. I know that for some people, you know, having a, a British person as as a king of Canada is is annoying, and I I can understand why. It's just that, you know, are we ready for uh, three or four years of constitutional discussions, where many more topics will be would come on the table besides the monarchy? Uh, frankly, I think it's not worth it. Right. And maybe, you know, ironically, as someone pointed out, it would probably be easier to convince the Brits to ditch the monarchy than it would be to to get it done in Canada. It's a much more tall order, constitutionally speaking. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, to see the the, the lineups to, uh, uh, you know, to pay homage to the the former queen, um, the deceased queen, uh, there's obviously still a lot of affection for at least the queen, if not the monarchy. We'll see what what uh, King Charles the third does of that. Uh, But I don't see the Brits doing anything in that direction for years to come. Well, it's interesting case you make, because I think everyone in this debate would agree that Canada has been, for, for many years, uh, a very stable democracy, honestly, you know, one of the, the older democracies uh, in the world. 
Is that because of or in spite of this institution? How do you come at that question? Well, I mean, uh, the monarchy serves, uh, especially in modern times, simply to make sure that there is a stable system for, for instance, transition uh, of, from one party to the other in government. And uh, in times, in difficult times, where there may be uh, possibilities or risks for instability, to serve as a, a, a stable institution uh, as a head of the country. That's, the, that's what it does in Britain, but obviously it's, in Britain it yeah. also plays a very symbolic nationalistic uh, role, which is not as as important here. Uh, But we've had this system of transition uh, that is respected, notwithstanding that we've had some governor generals who were maybe not the right choice. And that's the other part of my argument. If if you have a a Canadian head of state, so depending on how this person is appointed or elected, or if he or she is elected, it changes our whole system. It would require very, you know, in-depth changes to our constitution. If the person is appointed, how is it really different from the governor generals that we have today? And uh, would these people, uh, I mean... Today, governor generals are appointed by the government of Canada, and uh, it's purely a Canadian choice. The, the queen or the king have nothing to do with it, with it. And we've had some very good governor generals and some not so good governor generals. Right. So I would expect it would be the same if, if, if we had a purely Canadian head of state. So I don't really see the advantage besides a purely symbolic advantage of you know not having the king of canada also being the king of 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 england of of the uk so again is it worth you know going through this whole process where the quebec issue will be raised again and where obviously uh, indigenous uh, people will have some uh, demands and so on and so forth Right, and we'd be sacrificing some stability in the process. And as you alluded to and as you write, you know, that stability matters. And in fact, it's something that we've taken for granted in this country, haven't we? Well, I mean, just look at what's going on in the United States presently. Mm-hmm. You have uh, many uh, senator candidates for Senate posts and, and governor posts who are not willing to say that they will accept the result of the next elections, the the elections that will be held for Congress in a couple of months. Uh, I mean, this is very serious. And thankfully, we don't have that here. And I think the monarchy is, is part of the, is one partly one reason for that, because people know that there is this institution that is higher than political parties, and that is respected by the vast majority of Canadians, and certainly of political, uh, of politicians, and that they know is beyond partisan, is over partisan interests, and is, uh, as I said, is respected. So that's a very... Uh, that's something we should hold on and to and and uh, and not sacrifice just for the uh, I would say the symbolic aspect of having a Canadian head of state. Uh, a Canadian head of state is all is is very good in theory, but in practice, what would this head of state be exactly? As I said earlier, 
would she or he be elected? Mm-hmm. If, if, if this is the case, then we have a republic. And that's a totally different regime, regime than what we've had uh, since Confederation. And frankly, I'm not sure a republic looking at other republics in the world is much is, is preferable to the British parliamentary system that we've had uh, since Confederation and even earlier. Very interesting. As mentioned, much more at nationalpost.com. Your piece from the weekend on all of this. Andre, thank you so much for joining us here today. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. All the best. Andre Pratt is a former senator. He's a senior fellow with the Graduate School of Public and International Affairs at the University of Ottawa and author of this piece that ran over the weekend in the National Post on why Canada needs the monarchy. Because Canada has been well served. You look at the problems we've had when it comes to appointing a governor general. Do we want that to be a process to decide our head of state? Do we want the instability of an election to choose our head of state? Would we be well served by that? Would we get more stability and less division through that kind of a process? It's hard to see that it has served us well. The stability, the continuity that the crown provides. Why do we need to change that? Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770chqr.com. Talk to you next time.